Walter Sports Bar is excited to welcome Nationals fans back to the ballpark this spring. Located directly across the street from Nationals Park, Walters is the preeminent sports bar in Navy Yard, boasting over 35 televisions, both indoors and out. Walters is a great location to catch the Nats all season long. Walters encourages all fans to check out coronavirus.dc.gov to get up-to-date information on current dining restrictions. Go Nats! You know, Al, last year they couldn't have uh, fans in the ballpark, and so you lost all that energy and excitement outside the park. I'm really excited to see what that looks like this year now with fans back, and there's no place better located or better situated to host fans before, during, and after games than Walters. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, March 29th, 2021, along with Nats Insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInsports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. This is our final show before the start of the regular season. The next time we do an installment of Nats Chat, our lives will be forever changed. The season will have begun. Mark, will you miss discussing the happenings in Grapefruit League games? Because I sure will not. No, Al, I think the only people who are more excited for uh, the Grapefruit League to be over than us are the players themselves. <laughs> and you can tell that they've started to have enough, especially the guys who just feel good. Yeah, they got some work to do, but right now they just don't want to get hurt. That's the main thing. And get on that plane and head north. They are fired up to start the season like we all are. It is time for the season to begin, and it's going to be beginning very, very shortly. There is so much to do on this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Massive news on Saturday, the demotion of Carter Keboom. We'll get to that in just a moment. We'll examine where we're at with the Nats season opening roster. It is our season preview show, so we'll tell you where the Nats stand in the National League East, which, of course, many believe to be the best division in the majors, and we'll give you our season predictions for the Nats We will get on record. Are you prepared to get on record? Because this is like a court of law, man. You make your season prediction and you cannot waver once you make it. No, no, no. I'm all about it. I always publish not only my own, but all my colleagues' predictions on MassInSports.com on opening day. I guess you guys are going to get a little bit of a preview of that uh, a few days in advance of how I feel about this. And the most important thing that I always say we have to do is, and I'm going to hold this true to, to our show now as well, after the season is over, We have to go back and review them and let everyone know just how good or more likely how bad we were at our predictions. Hold us accountable. Point out how wrong we ended up being. There's no question about that. Let us have it. Uh, You can continue to tweet us. We continue to get so much great feedback from all you guys at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show, 
natschatpodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the Nats Chat Podcast, email the man behind all of this, Tim Shovers, that email address again, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. All right, so like I said, there is a ton to get into. No development larger than what went down on Saturday. The Nationals in a flurry of roster moves. I mean, this wasn't the only thing the Nats did, but it certainly was the biggest thing. Optioning Carter Keboom to AAA Rochester. If anyone thought we overreacted or there was an overreaction to Starling Castro starting that exhibition game at third base a few days back, uh, no, 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 no. If anything, that was underplayed. A lot of ramifications with this, a lot of layers to this. I guess we'll start with this, Mark. Carter Keeboom, we all know, had been struggling. Were you surprised when he got demoted on Saturday or not really? I have to admit I was not just because of what we'd seen happen over the whole spring, but especially in the last week. And when you'd watch him take the at-bats, he honestly looked lost up there. He's swinging at pitchers out of the zone. He's taking fastballs down the pipe for strike three. I know he talked about, and, and let's say this, to his credit, on Sunday, the day after he's demoted and after he had spent about over two hours in the batting cage hitting balls, he went into the Zoom room in West Palm Beach and talked to us for 16 minutes. And, you know, I give the guy a lot of credit because that's a tough spot to be in. He knows there's going to be tough questions. And we're asking him about how much he struggled. He talked in that about how he feels like he's close, that he feels like his swing is right there. And he felt like it wasn't a matter of not seeing pitches. From my opinion, my perception of all this from afar, I don't think he looked that close to me. And I'm guessing that the team didn't feel that way either. Otherwise, they probably would put him on the opening day roster. He's got a lot of work to do. And I think it's not just mechanics of his swing, but I think there's some mental work to be done here. Can he handle a second straight year where he was supposed to be the opening day third baseman and he will not be starting on opening day at third base? Yeah. And, you know, that's as good of a place as any to start in terms of like the major implications of this. This is a guy who was a first round pick in 2016, touted for a while as the Nats third baseman of the future. One of the reasons, maybe not the reason, but one of the reasons the Nats felt okay with letting Anthony Rendon go by a free agency. You know, it's, it's not unlike, I mean, it's, it's to a lesser extent, but it's not unlike letting Bryce Harper go because you had Robles and Soto. You let Rendon go in part because you had Keyboom. And like you just said, this is a second consecutive season in which he's supposed to be the everyday third baseman, ends up not being the case. And if you tack onto that, what happened in 2019, and that was a bit unfair, you know, he's playing shortstop. It was a brief call up to the major league level, but he struggled then. This is three straight years now where you're dealing with some version of disappointment for Carter Keboom. I guess I'll just ask it like this. I mean, is he a bust? Like at, at this point, if you're a Nats fan, do you have to be viewing Carter Keboom as a bust or do you think this is still salvageable? I hate to say that about a 23-year-old with as little you know, major league experience as he has. Clearly, he's a first-round pick for a reason. Clearly, he's hit in the minor leagues. He has the ability somewhere in there. Where I'm at right now is more of a concern that I'm just not sure it's ever going to happen here at this point. This might be a change of scenery type of situation. We've seen it happen with other guys as well. He, he certainly wouldn't be the first. I'm not necessarily faulting the Nationals here because they've been in the position where we talked about 2019. They kind of had to call him up. With all the injuries they had, Trey Turner was out. The team was really struggling early that year. He was hitting 350 or something at AAA. They called him up. It didn't go well. There was a ton of pressure on him all of a sudden as, hey, we need you to, you to help save our season that's going out of, out of whack here. It didn't go well. He gets sent down. And you wondered what the ramifications of that would be. Now, 2020, hey, we don't just believe in you as our guy, but we believe in you so much that we're going to let Anthony Rendon walk. 
and you're our new Anthony Rendon at third base. And they didn't say it that way, of course. But in his own mind, you know, he's probably thinking in those terms. And it doesn't go well. And now again this year, I just wonder what his mental state is. Like I said, he went and spent like two hours hitting 300 balls in the cage on Sunday and then came in and talked to us. And, and he's talked himself up. And, you know, Davey's saying, I just want him to relax, just go out and play. The natural ability is there. But there's probably so many thoughts swirling through his head right now. And he's playing for an organization that is trying to win and can't afford to let a guy go out there and fail like we talked about, I think, a few episodes ago, that I just wonder if ultimately he needs to be in a low-pressure environment where he can just relax and go out and play. They hope that can be the case in Fredericksburg, and then eventually he plays his way back up into Washington. But I do think it's fair to wonder if it's going to happen with this organization at all, and if ultimately it's going to need to happen somewhere else. For Carter Keyboom, 49 plate appearances in the 2021 exhibition season, batting average of 133, on base percentage of 204, slugging percentage of 222. He had more strikeouts than he had hits plus walks, 17 strikeouts versus six hits and four walks. So you use the phrase, the Nats are trying to win now. And of course they are, right? We would drop the Nats into that category of a win now team. But I find it so interesting And really, I don't know how you label this as anything other than a giant miscalculation of they went into this season with Carter Keboom as the plan for third base. And that was it. For a win now team, you needed to be totally right on Keboom. Otherwise, you were going to be in real trouble at a premium defensive spot and a spot at which you like to get some offense in third base. And they were wrong. They've been dead wrong on Carter Keboom. We talked about this. They did nothing at third base this offseason other than re-sign Josh Harrison, and he's not even their primary backup third baseman. The plan, as was revealed by Davey Martinez on Sunday, is yes, it is going to be Starling Castro as the primary third baseman, and it's going to be Harrison now as the primary second baseman. Starling comes back, he's going to play third base. You know, Josh will will get the bulk of uh, second base, and then we'll go from there. So there's a domino effect here, right, of you weaken yourself defensively at second because Castro's better defensive spot is second base. He's not a terrible third baseman, but there's a reason that Davey has said he wants to play Castro as a second baseman and not a third baseman. And, you know, who knows what you'll get from Harrison? I mean, Harrison at one time for the Pittsburgh Pirates was a good player. And Harrison actually last season as a bench guy for the Nats had a pretty good season, had a very nice on base percentage, 352 over the course of a year. But there's a reason he's been labeled a utility guy. I wonder about that aspect of this, Mark. This either they totally have uh, been wrong on Keyboom and miscalculated the situation, or Mike Rizzo wanted to do more at third base this offseason and wasn't allowed to. And, and what that more is, you know, I'm not sure. Like, I'm not one of these people who thinks they needed to have traded for Chris Bryant. You know, Chris Bryant the last three years is not the Chris Bryant he was the previous three years. And I know that wasn't necessarily like a ton of other options, but there were other options at third base. And like, that's the part of this that, that I think is really galling if you're a Nats fan. You're a win now team. You're an older team. Final season of Max Scherzer's contract, et cetera. And your plan at third base was Carter Keboom. And then if not him, I don't know. I guess we'll shift over Starling Castro. That just seems to me like the wrong way to have gone, and it looks even worse now. I think you make a good point there in that there were some big-name alternatives they could have gone after this winter. Chris Bryant, Eugenio Suarez, Justin Turner, DJ LeMahieu. Now, there's reasons why all those didn't happen. I think we talked about this before. But I think the failure is, like you said, not to then go get a different kind of plan B. There were other affordable plan Bs. Not that it had to be somebody who would instantaneously start over Keyboom, but somebody else who could easily slide into that role 
and be the guy if it turned out that he did struggle. And they didn't really do that. And I don't know if that's because they knew in the back of their minds. I, I'm not sure that this was the plan B in their minds when spring training started. Castro at third and, and Harrison at second. I, I don't sense that that was. I think they probably knew all along if they absolutely had to, they could. But I don't think this was really first and foremost on their minds. And I actually think Harrison's fine. I think he may not be playing every single day. They may find ways to, to bounce him around a little bit. And he may start some games in left field when Schwarber is going to have a day off. And so there could be some other things they could do here. But to me, the problem is what they have beyond that. And the two guys who are making the team, and this is a surprise, is Hernan Perez and Jordy Mercer, two utility guys. And like I said, if Harrison's not starting every day, and I, don't, I think he's going to start a lot, but maybe not every day, or if he has to start in left field some days, then one of those guys is also starting. And that's where I think the depth issue becomes a problem. If Harrison is on your bench, even if he's starting three days a week at various positions, that's a good, valuable guy to have on your team, can do a lot, and also come up to pinch hit. But now you're going to be actually asking Hernan Perez and Jordy Mercer to play somewhat significant roles for you, occasional starts, pinch hitting, whatever it might be. And that's where I feel like there should have been somebody else out there they could have gotten that wouldn't have cost a lot of money or wouldn't have cost prospects in return that could hold that role and help give them this more depth and be a little bit of a, of a plan B than ultimately we're going to see now. Mike Rizzo on December 15th in a Zoom press conference, quote, with conversations with ownership, we feel that we have the budget to get a championship caliber club. Hernan Perez and Jordy Mercer, not championship caliber people, all right? You want to unseat, you want to dethrone the Atlanta Braves off three straight NL East championships. You're competing in maybe slash probably the best division in baseball. Like, this is not good. And like we've been trying to emphasize here, it's not just about Keyboom himself. It's about the domino effect of this Keyboom demotion and what it means for second base, how it lessens the depth on a team that already, you know, wasn't exactly ultra deep. So we'll see. I mean, look, the way baseball works, maybe Keyboom was back up in a month and he hits, you know, 300 the rest of the season. Like, you know, that's baseball sometimes. But I think what you said sounds about right. This feels like if it's going to happen for Keyboom, it's not going to be here. I mean, this is hard to come back from back-to-back years like this. We're, we're told by anyone who will say it that he's going to be the guy at third. And then before the season even starts, they pull the plug on this. Like, that is very telling. It's not the way this is supposed to go. No, let me throw a couple of other things in real quick. One is Luis Garcia. That may have been in their minds a potential plan B. He didn't have a great spring either. I know he, late he had a couple better at bats. He hit a homer off a lefty. Davey said they were tempted. They thought about making him the starting second baseman. They decided not to. That could be the solution here before long. If he does do well in Fredericksburg and then you know ultimately if he's playing at Rochester when the, when their season begins and he shows that he's ready he could leapfrog Keyboom he could be the second baseman and I think that is a reason why they ultimately decided on Castro at third and Harrison at second they could play either position those guys but I think they felt like they want Castro to be in his spot and stay there and Harrison's maybe more of a temporary fix and that could be because they see Garcia at some point taking over there so that's point number 1 the other point I want to make real quick we talked about Perez and, and Mercer being surprises on the opening day roster. I thought about this. They've had a lot of surprises on opening day rosters in the past. And as much emphasis as we put on that and talk about who's there as the very first 25 or 26 now, these things change very quickly. I'm going to give you some names real quick, if you'll indulge me. Guys who made the Nationals opening day roster over the years. How many of these guys do you even remember? <laughs> okay. 2020, Emilio Bonifacio. Didn't stick around very long. 2019, Jake Knoll. 
Robertson to the belt. The kick in the pitch. It's inside ball four. And a curly W's in the books. Here comes Anthony Rendon down the line to score as Jake Knoll reaches first base. He is mobbed by his teammates. He has now since been DFA'd. 2018, Miguel Montero was an opening day national. Didn't survive for long. 2015, Reed Johnson. You remember Reed Johnson? Toward the hole. And a base hit for Johnson. Robinson around third. The throw to the plate is cut off. And it's 10 to nothing next. Johnson, regular season, exhibition season, continues to scorch the Mets. He was an opening day member of the Nationals. And then my favorite one is 2012. This is a team that went on to win 98 games and win its division. Brett Carroll and Xavier Nady were on the opening day roster in 2012. Brett Carroll, he scored the winning run on opening day. And then basically never did anything again. I think was out of baseball shortly after that. And Xavier Nady was, I think, in the starting lineup on opening day, or if not, was in the starting lineup within a couple of days. So as much as we stress over this and talk about who's going to be there on opening day, just keep in mind that the roster on May 1st can look very different from the roster on April 1st. Yeah, there's no doubt. But in terms of the starting lineup, I wonder how much different this will be as the season goes on. I mean, hopefully these guys surprise us, but this is not good news at all. And by the way, you're now even older because you got a second baseman in Harrison going into his age 33 season. You're carrying at least to begin the season, and maybe this changes, but, you know, a guy in Jordy Mercer who's going into his age 34 season. Like, you know, Keeboom, it wasn't just that he was, you know, this prospect, but he's a younger guy. You know, hopefully he's a building block for the future. And it's like, no, now it may be that it's a lost cause. We'll see. We're rooting for him. I mean, we don't want the guy to continue to struggle like this, but it's not been good so far. So you just hit on kind of where we're at with some of the pieces as we uh, try to, you know, put together in our minds what this national season opening roster is going to look like. The key boom development is obviously bad news, but when it comes to the formulation of the season opening bullpen, we had some terrific news on Friday evening that this Will Harris blood clot scenario in his right arm turns out wasn't a blood clot at all. And I guess we don't know anything with certainty at this point in terms of his availability for the regular season, but it sounds like he could be available sooner rather than later. What do we know right now? This is a crazy story, as it turned out, Alan. There's been a lot of mixed messaging here. And to be honest, the Nationals haven't been real great at conveying all this to us in, in, a, in a way that, um, that made a lot of sense or that it was very consistent. I'll just say that. Um, Here's what, at this point, what I can tell you based on what we know, Will Harris was feeling numbness in his fingers earlier in spring training, didn't quite feel right. They went and got him checked out and a doctor in West Palm Beach diagnosed him with a blood clot in his arm. They said, okay, we're going to send him to a a specialist in St. Louis, Dr. Robert Thompson, who works on a lot of athletes who have these kinds of issues, both minor and very major. And we want to get a second opinion from him. They got the appointment with him. He went there to visit him. On Friday afternoon, Davey Martinez in his pregame session with us says he had a procedure today to remove a very small blood clot from his arm. Good news, though, things are taken care of, and hopefully we're going to get him back. But we'll know more at the end of the day. Then after the game that night, Davey then says to us, actually, I've got you know very good news for you. The doctor in that procedure, a, a, a venogram, discovered that there was no blood clot after all. Now, like I said, a few hours earlier, Davey actually said that he had the procedure to remove a blood clot. Then after the game, he's saying, no, the procedure found there was no blood clot. 
So if you're as confused as I am right now, join the club. The big picture thing here is, though, this is very encouraging, hopefully. I don't know that we really know what was causing the numbness or the other issues for Will Harris. They're still trying to figure out, okay, can we just throw him right back into the mix and get him going again? Uh, I'm not sure they know the exact answer to that. But while he's not going to start the year on the opening day roster, I think that's safe to say. It doesn't seem like he's going to need to miss a lot of time as long as they determine there's nothing else going on here health-wise. And that's a huge lift for them because I was kind of preparing for, and I think a lot of people in their minds were preparing for, him missing you know, two months, three months, maybe more. And at least doesn't seem like that's going to be the case now. So that is a, a big boon for them. But I do wish, selfishly as a member of the media, that they had been a little more forthcoming and straightforward with their reporting of all these things to us as then we passed them on to all of you because it was very confusing on our side and it came across looking like they told us one thing and it turned out to be something else. So if you're keeping track at home and you are aware of the Nationals' oh-so lengthy history of confusing medical developments, we have already had three in spring training. There's the Will Harris situation that Mark just outlined. There's the John Lester situation that Mark made mention of. Uh, Thyroid removed, no, actually parathyroid removed. There is a difference. There's also the Steven Strasburg thing where we were told left calf strain and it actually turned out it was a ruptured tendon in his left calf. You know, not the Achilles tendon, but that's, you know, that's not exactly a left calf strain. A ruptured plantaris tendon is what Strasburg dealt with. But it turns out, well, I heard that and I said, oh my God, like, because he was pitching five days later and he said like the doctor immediately told him, it's okay, unless you're still walking on all fours, you don't need these things. So unless we've devolved so much from an evolutionary standpoint that we're no longer walking on two legs, apparently Steven Strasburg is perfectly fine without a plantaris tendon in his calf. Yeah, I guess so. But it it is amazing, and you know this better than anybody, every year there is misrepresentation, there is confusion, there is, you know, change to what we're initially told with Nationals injury news. And look, I know medical stuff isn't always simple and it's not, you know, diagnosis can change and things like that. But man, three times in spring training, like you talk about living up to your reputation, the Nats have already done that. And then some with this medical reputation. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> I've been living through this for a long time now. There's a lot of inside baseball stuff here about, you know, reporters and and how we get our information and and that. And I know it doesn't always interest everyone. I'll just say this. I think Davey Martinez and prior managers on this team have often been put in a bad situation. They're not medical experts. Too often, they're the ones who are put out there to convey this stuff. And it's tough. I mean, th- these are confusing, complicated things. And I personally feel like it would be better if they could get the message out through their medical staff, whether that's actually letting us talk to the trainers and doctors or putting out statements that come directly from them as opposed to the manager. But this is a a behind the scenes little thing that's been going on for a long time between the the reporters and the organization. And they've decided this is the way they do it. And they're apparently comfortable with the ramifications of it. Couple more spring training developments, and then we'll get into our season preview items. Uh, So John Lester pitched in the Nats penultimate exhibition game Sunday afternoon, an 11-3 win over the St. Louis Cardinals. Three runs, two earned in four and a third innings through 75 pitches. It is looking like he's going to be good to go for the start of the season. But, and I saw you tweet this out, the order in which we see national starters to at least begin the season might not be exactly what we had anticipated. Yeah, it may not. You know, I think we've in our minds kind of already said, oh, it goes Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, Lester, Ross. 
And a combination of things, when you have, you know, Lester had got started late because of his parathyroid being removed, not his thyroid, big difference, as we said. And Strasburg having his issue, remember Scherzer came in a little bit late with the, the ankle. And just the way their schedule has lined up, it hasn't been perfectly along those lines. And so I've wondered if they might try to tweak a few things along the way. Lester himself mentioned after throwing 75 pitches in this Grapefruit League starter, it's only his third and everyone else has had more than him, that maybe there would be an opportunity for him to do one more. It would be some other kind of tune-up in a simulated game, perhaps on April 2nd. That's Friday, the day after opening day and before they play again on Saturday. You could do that. And then he could come back and actually be the team's fifth starter starting the sixth game on April 7th after Scherzer's second start, if you got all that. Because of off days, they have ways to finagle all of this. So I would not be surprised reading between the lines if that's what they ultimately do. doesn't mean that he's not you know, still their fourth best starter, but it gives him one more chance to build himself up to maybe catch up to everybody and do that. And then the other thing that uh, he mentioned, he thinks it makes a difference to have your left-handers split apart and not pitch back-to-back days. So he and Corbin, I would not be surprised if that ultimately ends up being the case as well. And uh, so we're we're not seeing Corbin and Lester as three, four, but maybe split up between them. One more item, and this is an exciting thing, and this has been impossible to ignore if you're a Nationals fan. The extent to which Ryan Zimmerman and Josh Bell have killed it in Grapefruit League play. And as we always say, right, exhibition games, we don't know how much to take from these things, right? But if we're going to point out the guys who struggle, Carter Keyboom, Juan Soto, Trey Turner, it's only fair that we highlight some of those who have been outstanding in exhibition play. And this Nationals platoon setup for first base, right, where it's going to be Josh Bell facing right-handed pitching, Ryan Zimmerman facing left-handed pitching. Each guy has been so good so far in terms of what we've seen in 2021. Ryan Zimmerman over just nine exhibition games, six home runs. Josh Bell over his 17 exhibition games, six home runs. But it's not just that. Zimmerman batting 480 with a 519 on base. Bell batting 391 with a 455 on base. We all know that a lot of teams do positions like this now, where you have a right-handed approach and a left-handed approach. And, you know, it's not just about like you have to have one guy for one spot, you know, at the end of the season, it's like, what do both of those guys produce? And you can get some real high level production with a really good platoon setup. Obviously, it's just exhibition season. Obviously, Zimmerman has to stay healthy. And obviously for Josh Bell, he's coming off a really bad 2020. But Mark, it has been remarkable. And it's been exciting to see what these guys have done in Grapefruit League play. It has. And here's why I think it is worthy of of actually paying attention to this and believing that it is a sign of something. It's not the numbers. It's the way they look as they're putting these numbers up. Josh Bell is hitting the ball to center field and to the opposite field from both sides of the plate. That's a really good sign. He hit a ball uh, in Port St. Lucie at Mets camp as a left-handed hitter that went off the, way up off the scoreboard in left center field, 454 feet stat cast they have down there. Josh Bell just clanked one off the scoreboard to tie the game. That's huge. If he is doing that consistently, and it looks like he has been. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday.
that's a big sign for him. Now, he is notoriously a streaky hitter. Same for Zim. So you just hope that he's not red hot right now. The season begins and all of a sudden he's ice cold after facing Jacob deGrom on a 40-degree night on Thursday. And that doesn't send him down a spiral where he goes into a slump. You hope that's not the case. But it's not just the numbers. It's the way he looks. And Zim is hitting everything hard. The outs are loud. Obviously, the home runs are great. But every at-bat I've seen him take has been loud contact. And I think the key here is that he's not playing every day. And of course, a spring training, you wouldn't do that anyways. But I think they're already trying to get him into the sort of mode that we might see him during the season where he's not playing every day. And this can be a way to help keep him healthy and keep him fresh and still be productive. And so all those of you out there, I thought you were going to ask me, could plan B at third base be Ryan Zimmerman? I've gotten that question a lot. I'm not doing that. No. Okay. That's not happening for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, the fact that Ryan Zimmerman can't throw the baseball across the diamond like that consistently. And it would be a bad situation if they ever put him in that spot again to do that. But even more than that, the whole idea coming into this year is that they don't want Zimmerman to take 600 at-bats. They want him to take 250, 300 at-bats and maximize what they get from him. And that by keeping him healthy, they hope that does help him keep him healthy. Therefore, he can be more productive. And so as tempting as it may be to say, hey, they got to find more bats for the guy, I think what they're planning to do is ultimately going to be best for him. And I think he believes that as well. No doubt. If you caught our conversation with Ryan Zimmerman a few weeks ago on the Nats Chat podcast, he kind of comped his situation to that of Howie Kendrick in recent seasons. And I think that's a, that's a perfect comp where less is more and keep the guy healthy, you know, but get him into games, you know, three, four times a week, that kind of a thing and just let him produce. And Zimmerman, he's still capable with the bat. He's obviously not peaks in, but the guy can still hit. And if you go back to 2019, of course, the last full major league season we had, you combine Bell stats against righty pitching, Zim stats against lefty pitching. You get a combined 30 home runs. You get a combined OPS of 997. Who wouldn't take that for the Nats uh, from the first base position in 2021? All right. Where do the Nats stand in the ultra-loaded 2021 National League East? And what are our season predictions for the Nationals? All that's coming up in moments. Want to tell you about Real Estate Rachel. Support for Nats Chat comes from Rachel Levy of Compass Real Estate by focusing on the personal parts of the real estate process and using technology to simplify the rest. Rachel seamlessly guides her clients through their experiences a D.C. resident for over 30 years, Rachel uses her deep local knowledge and exceptional customer service to advocate for her clients all across D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Find their places in the world. To learn more, follow Rachel on Instagram at Real Estate Rachel. You know, Rachel and her husband are lifelong Nats fans. She's been here her whole life, been a fan from day one. She's exactly the type of fan that we're trying to reach with our podcast, and we are really glad to have her on as a sponsor. So, of course, there's what we think about the Nationals, but there's also where the Nationals stand in their division. And, of course, so much of Major League Baseball these days isn't just who you are, but the environment in which you exist, i.e., are you playing in a weak division like, say, the American League Central, or are you playing in a loaded division like, it seems, the National League East? The NL East used to be the NL East. We all know that, and the Nats uh, benefited from that to at least some extent in some of those and at least winning seasons. But this season, at least on paper, and who knows what ends up happening, but at least on paper, the NL East appears to be at least four teams deep. And maybe you could argue five if you buy into the Miami Marlins. I personally do not, but the Marlins did make the postseason in 2020 for whatever that's worth. But you've got the Atlanta Braves, 
with their three consecutive division championships. You've got the New York Mets with their new Richie Rich owner, Steve Cohen, and some big moves this offseason, including trading for Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco, although Carrasco's already hurt in typical Mets fashion. And you've got the Philadelphia Phillies, who, you know, you feel like one of these days will make the postseason again. Haven't done so, though, since 2011. So, Mark, you know this division. You've toured it so many times over the years. What do you think about this 2021 NL East, and where do the Nats fit into the divisional picture? So I actually have a little different opinion than you of some of that, what's going to go on at the bottom of the division. I'll get to that here in a moment. But I want to start with the Atlanta Braves because I think that the rest of the baseball world is just sleeping on these guys. And I don't know why. I I get that the Mets are in New York and they made big splashes this winter and, and got a lot of attention. All this time, the Atlanta Braves, who have won three straight division titles, who have some of the best young talent in the game, have more young talent coming, especially in their rotation. They were one win from going to the World Series last fall. We forget this. They were up 3-1 on the Dodgers uh, before losing that series. So these guys are legit. They deserve to be, I think, considered the favorites going into the season. That's not a heavy favorite. Not to say they definitely are going to win the division. But I think even in a worst case scenario, they're contenders. They're going to be in the mix. And I don't think any of the other teams, you can say that with 100% certainty. I think everyone else, you have to say... Things could go really well for them, or they could go south, and all of a sudden, they're really out of the the picture. So to me, I think the Braves are a clear favorite for the division, or at least the team that is almost certainly going to be in the mix there at the end. I think the Mets, I like what they've done. I think there's obviously a whole lot of enthusiasm there, but there are still parts there that are not full, or there's a lot of question marks, and it's especially in the rotation. You mentioned Carrasco already being hurt. Syndergaard's coming back from Tommy John surgery here at some point. You hope, if you're a Mets fan, that he's going to come back and be the great Thor who they saw from several years ago. But you don't know that for sure, how he's going to come back. So that rotation concerns me. Their bullpen also concerns me somewhat. Guys who have been very hit or miss, Edwin Diaz, Dylan Batances, Juris Familia, there's not a lot of sure things there either. And as we know in New York, when things go south, especially it seems like with the Mets, it, things are either great or they completely fall apart <laughs> spectacularly. And that's the one thing I wonder there. If and when things go bad, how will they handle it? Will it become too much for them? So I, I, I'm a little bit on the fence about them. You know who I'm, at? I'm higher on than you, though? The Marlins. Really? I am. I'm not predicting they're going to win the division. I'm not saying that. But they've got some really good young pitching. And they're also a team that everybody kind of sleeps on. My biggest concern with them is depth. You know, they did what they did last year in 60 games. Can they do it over 162? And that's where I do think there could be a bit of a a concern. But if their rotation, the top three in their rotation, especially, if it's as legit as it looks and their core position players are are legit, I think they can kind of be in the mix. And I'm putting them ahead of the Phillies coming into the season because I am not sold on the Phillies at all. I think they have a great lineup. They can score runs with anybody, but I am not sold on their pitching staff at all. It's Aaron Nola and I don't know what else. And I don't think in this division they're going to be able to win games with that kind of pitching staff. I could see them losing a lot of games late because of the bullpen. I could see them getting out slugged by some other teams. I think I actually have the Phillies last and the Marlins, you know, fourth, the Mets third, and I'm putting the Nats second behind the Braves. There's a lot of variance here. They can go different different directions. But I feel like for all the problems that the Nats have, and they do have their problems, If this rotation actually lives up to what it should be, if they stay healthy and all that, they're going to be in every game. 
And we've seen how that's been able to mask other issues over the years. They had the worst bullpen in baseball 2019 and still won 93 games and should have won more if that bullpen was, you know, even halfway competent. So I think as long as the rotation's fine, I do think they are ultimately going to be there in the end and, and I'll have them in second place behind the Braves. All right. I'm going to hold my fire on the Nats for a moment just to pick up on some things you hit on there going around the NLE. So with the Braves, there's no doubt. I mean, to me, the Braves are the second best team in the National League. Like the Dodgers are the superpower and the Braves are number two. Like that's what Atlanta is. In fact, if you go around Major League Baseball, there may not be more of a sure thing after the Dodgers winning the National League West than there is of the Braves winning the National League East. And I know that sounds odd, right? Because we just went through, oh, the NL East, it's maybe the most, it's the deepest division in baseball, most loaded division in the sport. Yeah, but go around the sport, the Braves may well be the second biggest favorite to win the team's division in 2021. The Braves have been really good. You know, I think this is the first time in a long time you look at the NL East and you say, which team has the best rotation going into the season? You don't say the Nats anymore. I don't think you do. I think you now say the Braves. That's a big change. That's a real you know, changing of the guard in terms of what was said for years in the division. The Braves have a loaded lineup. The Braves have all kinds of youth on their side. So yeah, I mean, the Braves are the clear favorite to win the division. Interesting what you say about the Marlins. I mean, look, they do have young pitching, but I think their offense is a real question mark. And they went 31-29 and 29 last year with a run differential of minus 41. I mean, they had no business winning 31 games last year. Don Mattingly, they should erect a statue of Don Mattingly <laughs> in, in South Beach for what he did in 2020, especially with that COVID-19 outbreak the Marlins dealt with. So I guess it's possible. I just, I, I'm still not a believer in them. I got to see so much more from their offense. With the Mets, man, the Mets crack me up because there is this like perpetual dark cloud above the Mets. And every year the Mets get hyped up and every year the Mets disappoint. It happens all the time. So it's like, if you told me the Mets end up going, you know, 80 and 82 this year, I wouldn't be surprised. That's like so typical of the Mets. I do think, though, they're good. I think their offense is really good. I mean, if guys don't stay healthy, sure. But they have a very talented lineup. They have a deep lineup. They have a lot of options with their lineup. You know, it's funny. Robinson Cano getting suspended again for PEDs. That was like a gift from the baseball gods. It allows so much flexibility for them. There is concern after DeGrom. There's no, there's no doubt about that. This Carrasco injury is a big deal. And we don't know about Syndergaard and, you know, the few other guys you're not quite sure of. So the Mets are a question mark. Phillies, their bullpen was atrocious the last few years. It's hard to believe it's going to continue to be this bad just because of the nature of relievers. But it's been like a year-to-year problem for Philadelphia. I look at the Nats, though, and I guess now we can sort of just get into our season predictions for the Nats and where we're at. I just look at the Nats, man, and I just see a team that, to your point, they're too good to be bad. There's too much talent for them to like crater, but there are too many question marks to feel like this is going to be a great season. And like already, we're not even at, done with spring training, and already, like a lot of these question marks, you know, something like a Carter Keyboom, something like you know the bullpen, you know, we'll see what this Will Harris thing takes us. But like you know, Harris injured and Tanner Rainey injured, they don't have a lot of depth. And it's hard to see all these question marks going in their favor. And whereas in years past, you could say, well, they have this rotation. I don't know if we can say that anymore. I mean, I don't think the rotation is going to be terrible, but it was really bad last year. And I I think we're kind of just potentially whistling past the graveyard to think, well, it's going to go right back to 2019. I've heard a lot of this the last few months with the Nats of like, well, last year, yeah, but that was, you know, a shortened season. It still was a season. Teams still competed. And it, it wasn't some joke of a season. The Dodgers won the World Series. That, that was a 
you know, a, a true representation of the season. The Dodgers winning, the Rays winning the American League pennant. I mean, it's, it's not like you had Rockies Tigers in the World Series. Like it was a real season and the Nats were really bad last year. And I just, I feel like there's been too much of a dismissal of last season. So for me, I think the Nats are going to go 83 and 79. Going to be in that like low 80s win territory. Again, they're too good to be bad, but they're not good enough to be great. And I don't look at them and see them as, okay, they can knock off the Braves. If the Braves stay healthy, I just don't see it. And here's another thing too with the National League playoff picture. And I'll shut up after this. If you believe in the Padres and you believe in the Braves, the Nats are playing for one playoff spot. The three division winners and the Padres are getting one of the wild card spots. So that's problematic too, that it's not like, well, you know, maybe they get one of the two wild cards. I mean, if, if you buy into San Diego, and I personally do, because that NL West beyond the Padres and the Dodgers isn't very good. So those teams are going to fatten up on beating up the likes of the Rockies and the Diamondbacks. And, you know, we'll see about the Giants. But I think that's another tough issue here for the Nationals is, you know, basically competing for that one spot. So 83 and 79, I think they're in that territory that you never want to be in, which is that, that middle ground. And I will make a fearless prediction. Please do. A big summertime topic will be, should the Nationals trade Max Scherzer? Final season of his contract. Nats are teetering on playoff contention. I think that's going to be a big topic come the month of July. Will they have the chops? They didn't in 2018 with Bryce Harper. Well, Mike Rizzo did, but the learners did not. Will they have the chops to trade away Max Scherzer in the final season of his contract? Wow. You are mapping out a worst case scenario here, and it's not even April 1st yet. I get where you're coming from, and I think there's absolutely a chance that we are discussing that in July. And that's a fascinating discussion that maybe we'll have down the road. I feel like it's a little different from Bryce in that you kind of knew Bryce was a good chance was going to leave and get a big deal somewhere else. Whereas I think Max would want to stay on a short term deal and maybe it makes sense for them just to re-sign him. And so you're not going to trade a guy if you're going to do that. But that's a conversation for another time. I do want to pick up on what you said, though. I've had the same thought about the Padres. If they are legit, and by all counts, they seem like they are legit. I mean, they're nobody is more all in this year than the Padres are, then in all likelihood, there's one playoff spot left in the NL for somebody for the, it's essentially, it's going to be the second place team in the East or the second place team in the Central. And as much as we gloss over the Central, because they're, the division is weaker and they're playing each other more, somebody could feast on the Pirates and um, I don't know who even knows what the Reds and the Cubs are going to be like this year. So, you know, maybe like the Brewers, let's say, for example, beat up on some of those teams and get up to 91 wins. And that's enough to top the second place team in a very competitive East. And even if you said the second place team in the East is a better team head to head than the second place team in the Central, that could cost you a wild card spot. So I, I, I think it's a fair point. I think that's something to consider. But I think with the Nationals that we may be making too big a deal out of the things that we think are problem areas for them. And, and then I'm going to include third base at that. As much time as we spent on the spring, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have because it's been a, a big storyline, of course. We're talking about the guy who's going to hit eighth in their lineup every day. And if it's now Josh Harrison instead of Carter Keboom, does that dramatically turn this team from a contender into a non-contender? No, I don't think so. I don't think it makes that much difference. The Nationals are built because of their star power. That's how they won the World Series. It's the 10 best guys on their roster, not 11 through 26. And so if their top 10 guys are healthy and performing the way that we think they, they can or still can, I think they're going to be all right in the end. Now, maybe they don't perform that way. Like you said, last year they didn't. But I still feel like the star power there is good enough to keep them in the mix for this. And you want to know what my biggest concern about the Nationals actually is. And we haven't talked a whole lot about it. 
My biggest concern is their defense. It was a problem last year. They hope they've improved there, but we know Josh Bell is not going to be a good first baseman. You hope that Kyle Schwarber is okay in left field. You do now have a guy playing third base who's not a natural third baseman and a guy at second base who is a utility guy. I think Harrison is going to be fine, but I think defense could ultimately be their undoing or, or their biggest problem area. Not so much the bullpen, not so much who the third baseman is, not so much the rotation. Those little things that Davey likes to talk about, that could cost them some close games. And right now, going into the season, that's actually my biggest concern. And I'm not sure enough people are thinking about that. I think that's a great point. That's were dead last in the majors in defensive run saved last year. And when you're a starting pitching dependent team, defense matters, especially with some non-strikeout pitchers like John Lester and Joe Ross, defense matters. So I think that's an excellent point. It all begins Thursday night, Nationals Park. We expect, what, about 5,000 fans or so in attendance? 5,000. Cannot wait to see them. It's going to be cold. As nice as the weather's been this week, all of a sudden on Thursday, it's going to be in the 40s or 30s and windy, and it's not going to feel like baseball, but it's going to be baseball season. Going to be great to have that on. Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom. Do not forget, Natch Chat Podcast, the morning after every Nationals game. So it all starts. Look for it on your phone, on your favorite podcast platform. Friday morning, Nationals-Mets at Nats Park in the season opener. Continue to tell us what you think, what you want. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. And don't forget, you can email us your thoughts on the Nationals, Podcast at gmail.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time after the season opener on the Nats Chat Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.